Hey everybody, welcome to the 116th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show, we have William Boyle, the author of The Lonely Witness, and the recently republished Gravesend. Uh, Bill's one of my best pals out there. He's just a really, really super nice guy, and I'm lucky to know him, and there's a lot of good info in this episode about um, kind of how to go from indie writing to the big leagues. I'm sorry, my brain isn't quite working right now. <laughs> I started a, a nine to five job and I'm also doing freelance editing pretty much as soon as I get home. I'm just kind of digging into those. So my brain is pooped. But this episode is still good. I recorded it when my brain was functioning a little bit better. So I'm off to drink some coffee and uh, you are off to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, please do enjoy this 116th episode of the JDO Show featuring William Boyle. Mr. William Boyle, thank you for uh, your second appearance on the JDO Show. Hey, man, thanks for thanks so much for having me again and for, for everything. Yeah, no worries, man. Hey, congratulations. Do you want to... Basically, uh, you are a crime writer, for people who don't know or who haven't yeah. listened to the first podcast with you. And uh, I wanted to have you on because Gravesend, which was your first novel, has had a really kind of interesting journey. And I think that for people who are listening, I think there's a lot... I guess a lot of hope in it, <laughs> a lot yeah. of uh, uh, ideas that, you know, you can, in fact, move from the indies to the bigs. And so I kind of wanted to, if you could kind of like just recount uh, the journey that Gravesend took to go from uh, Broken River to, is it, it's Pegasus now, right? Yeah, Pegasus Crime. Cool. Yeah. So just, just tell, tell us about that first. Okay. Yeah. So um, it was five years ago, I think now almost five years that that you published it with broken river so it's november 2013 mm -hmm. i believe yeah that sounds right. um and you know pretty soon after that um i got the revage my french public my first french publisher um was interested in it and then i signed a contract with them but the book didn't appear in france until 2016 and then it got a lot more just kind of you know, more people heard about it, more people knew about it, I think, um, at least internationally. Um, so uh, the UK and German and Greek things happened after that. So the book has, has just come out in those three places earlier this year. Um, and uh, Pegasus um, bought my other book, The Lonely Witness, first, uh, which is sort of a loose follow up to Gravesend mm -hmm. and then they they wanted to um reissue Gravesend so uh, I mean that's the that's kind of the short version of it but yeah it's it's kind of had this this life of uh you know hasn't hasn't really faded away which has been great so has it just been a matter of people sort of just reading the book because okay so basically if I could back up a little bit one of the things yeah yeah that sorry I, I went through that fast no 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 worries man I'm just uh basically this kind of drum that I beat is that I'm really really against this idea that um indie publishing is sort of a dead end because yeah you know like a decade ago man um when I was first starting out there was this sort of thought meme that was going through publishing circles that if you self-published or if you went on an indie press or whatever you were sort of like dooming your career and i just yeah, I, like yeah. i don't think that that's 
bared out at all, you know? No, yeah, for sure. I, I never, I never really understood that um, because I mean, I was somebody who grew up with, you know, indie film and music, um, especially. I mean, or I think in in those in those places, um, it's just such a logical, you know, makes more sense. There, there's respect given to to the independent film and the independent album, um, whereas in publishing, that that's not you know, hasn't really been the case and certainly wasn't the case for a long time. Um, but I kind of came to it with that attitude initially, you know, I was at that time I was, um, I was reading a lot of stuff on small indie presses and, and liking a lot of stuff. And I really didn't think, you know, there was anybody who was trying to do what, what broken river was, was trying to do, um, in a, in a mainstream way. And I think that started to change a little lately in the mainstream you know, kind of bigger publishers have kind of adapted a little bit more, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great, I mean, it's not just a great stepping stone. I mean, it's just a great thing. I mean, if somebody produces just books with an indie press their whole career, I think that's, that's great. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, it's just, you get to, you get to do stuff that, that maybe you don't get to do, or you don't get pushed in the wrong directions in the same way. Yeah, I was curious about that too. Was there um going kind of back to Gravesend a little bit? Was there anything that they kind of changed from the initial book? Is there like certain cuts made cuz I I'm assuming they have, you know, dedicated pros who go through it and yeah, you know, scalpel that shit. So No, you know, I mean, I don't there were there were no changes uh that were made um at all. Uh there were two 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 minor Two minor corrections from the Broken River edition, I think. Uh, a missing word that had haunted me for years. <laughs> and uh, and one other, I think I think maybe even the other one was just like a formatting correction that we, we weren't able to go back and fix when we when we initially um, did the book. Chapter other than 13. that, yeah, I mean... It was ch- your yeah, yeah. chapter 13, I know. Yeah, I know. well, and they, they, they changed that. I mean, they changed that kind of formatting anyway, like the chapter numbers and stuff um but other than that yeah i don't know what the deal is i mean they didn't they didn't suggest i think maybe some of the smaller kind of um technical things that they they might have suggested maybe because the book has already been published in the uk and other places um and without anything being changed so i don't don't know if there was just kind of some um you know i don't know some rule they have about that but they, yeah, they, there was there was nothing nothing changed is that the but that obviously that wasn't the case with uh, lonely witness right because you sent them that manuscript in a in a draft form yeah yeah that that one we i mean i went through a, a longer editorial process uh with that one um and i mean i think gravesend is i don't think there's anything they would have had to change i mean i don't think there's anything they would have i mean i think we did did it, you know, you did a great job editing it. And I mean, I think, you know, maybe there were some kind of like, um, small, um, con- inconsistencies or something in terms of from, from the, I mean, not in Gravesend, but maybe from the lonely witness to Gravesend in terms of, uh, you know, how a street name is written mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but they didn't, yeah, they didn't change any of that stuff. But yeah, The Lonely Witness was a little bit of a longer editorial process. I worked with my, my editors. Her name's Katie McGuire, and she's great. And uh, that was a, a actually a really good, useful um, process for me. 
Is there anything in particular that stands out? This these are these are kind of deep nerd questions, but I'm no. I'm, I'm curious, you know, and anytime um somebody who I it's like you, Rob Hart, a few other people, Jordan Harper maybe, whenever they yeah. go to like get their edits done, since that's kind of what I'm doing, I'm like, what is it? What do the big people do? Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So is there anything that sticks out that they that they ask um, you to change or or what? I'm trying to think, and the Lonely Witness, that was a, li- a little while ago now. I mean, I feel like it was about uh, probably a year ago or over a year ago where I did that. Um, and I've gone through the edits on another book since then, so I'm kind of cloudy on that one. It wasn't anything huge. I think the Lonely Witness probably was fairly close to my original draft. It was lots of little... Lots of little pract- good practical things, um, um, you know, some some really, just some really good advice um, on, especially things towards the end of the book um, that that had to do mostly with um, the main character Amy. Was, just kind of. Is it just like like character you know, development type stuff, or was it like just uh, chronological inconsistencies, plot holes? Like, what, what do you mean? I think it was just kind of. Um, yeah, little little ways of going a little further with a with a moment or with a scene to to kind of draw something else out of the character to make make um, make someone understand the character a little bit more fully. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Lonely Witness. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. I don't think there was anything huge in that one. I had you know I had gone through some edits um, from my from both of my agents and everybody at their agency assistants and uh, other, other folks who work there, which was all really helpful to me. Um, but that book, I wrote that book kind of, kind of in a quick burst. Um, and, and so it kind of felt all of a piece. Um, and I think that that kind of helped. It wasn't like I was, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the advantages, I've only really written books like this, but one of the advantages of writing books set over a short span of time, I think, is you don't have, a, you know, you're cutting out some trouble for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it takes place only over a couple of days or a few days. Um, so I didn't, I, I could keep good track of stuff, which was nice. Yeah, I find the same thing when I'm writing, too. I spend a lot of time not writing. But then when I do, I feel like I have to get the whole thing out within like a week or two because, dude, the problem is, is like you you get bored, you know? Yeah, you you lose the, it's like reading a book. I mean, if you lose the thread, it's, it's, it's done. Um, You know, it's, it's, that's, that's how I am uh, for sure. Uh, You know, it's really hard for me to go back to something after taking a month off or six months off or whatever. Right. Yeah, I know exactly. And I always hear about, well, I guess the way that Stephen King does it is he finishes it and then puts it in a drawer for a year and then yeah, goes yeah. back and looks at it. But even that, man, I don't, I get it. I think it's cool, but I kind of like that sort of, uh, there's a, there's definitely a, a consistency in tone and feeling when you can tell yeah. that a book has been written in the span of a few weeks, maybe a month. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of, like, uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson has this thing right. where he'll, He'll rent out a, a, a hotel room for the weekend, and yeah. he will just stock it with like monsters and Red Bulls and stuff, and just <laughs> bang out as close to a draft as he can get. Well, normally, I think I think normally the goal is like fifteen to twenty thousand words, right? But wow, yeah, what you're doing is essentially you're just you're writing that feeling because I yeah. I experienced this with uh, with books that I've been tr- that I've been trying to write, 
and I've realized that I have to like go write other things and then come back to them when I feel like I can do it again because right. it's just it's become so large in my head. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but the idea becomes so big that when you sit yeah. down, you're just like fucking paralyzed. You're like, yeah. shit, I yeah, got to yeah. get smaller. Um, but uh, I, you had mentioned about how the editor kind of helped you with uh, some character choices. And I think that your books in particular are obviously they're extremely character based. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I often just like think of them as book forms of like James Gray movies. Right. I yeah. I mean, that. that's 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 uh, what I'm going for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So so when you start off with this, like Gravesend or The Lonely Witness or your newest one, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself. Is that right? Yeah. 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 That's so, coming out next year. Yeah. That's tight. That's tight. So when you do that, do you start with a character? Do you start with an inciting incident or how, how does that process work for you? Uh, the Lonely Witness, it was actually kind of both of those things. Um, so I, I I knew I wanted to write about Amy Falconetti, who is a minor character in Gravesend. Um, so she was just kind of this character that I wondered about and worried about a lot. And I started thinking about, you know, what she'd been up to in, in the last six years. Um, so I knew I wanted to write about her and I knew I wanted to start with her. Um, and then I, I had this my grandmother, who uh, just recently passed away, but last year, or I guess up until about a year and a half ago, um, she was still at home, and then she, she wound up having to go into a nursing home for the last year, year and a half. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But she was still home, and she was housebound, and she'd been a big churchgoer her whole life, and um, she couldn't go anymore, so she had communion delivered to the house weekly. And, um, you know, I, I was there a good amount of times when, when the lady who brought her communion came over and they went through the, the ritual together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that happened. And simultaneously at that time, she had this woman, um, who was a f- f- childhood friend of mine's mother, uh, was like her caretaker kind of, she'd come sit with my grandmother for a few hours a day while my mother was at work. So I just had this kind of, these things happening at the same time. I was home at my grandmother's house, my mother's house, they lived together. And um, I started to think, you know, what if this is what Amy was doing now? Amy Falconetti was, you know, had had dated Alessandra for a while and they moved to this neighborhood together and then Alessandra split and left for Los Angeles again and Amy stayed behind in this neighborhood and kind of got drawn back into um, the Catholicism of her youth. So I started to think about that. And then I started to think um, about this woman who was my friend's mother, who was sitting with my grandmother. And this was a kid who kind of, I'd lost track of him after junior high. And he'd kind of gone down a little bit of a dark path from what I'd heard. So I, I thought, you know, what if she didn't show up one day and this this guy showed up mm-hmm. in her place? Um, so that was kind of the, the incident. I thought, okay, this is what Amy's doing. She shows up to give communion to this old woman. And um, and the old woman is kind of in panic mode because her usual caretaker hasn't been showing up and her sketchy son has been showing up in her place. So that was what I knew basically at the very beginning. I started there and then I kind of worked out from there. You do any kind of outline or anything like that or you just roll with it? Not really. I mean, I, I, I did actually, the only witness, I think I, I mean, I don't do like a in-depth outline at all, but I did kind of have some things in mind. Like, um, you know, in terms of the timeline and and what was going to happen, I think I knew where I wanted the book to end. Um, 
but I, you know, a lot of the stuff in the middle, I kind of figured out as I was writing it. I liked, I really liked the feeling of just kind of drifting into situations and kind of putting characters in the world and seeing what happens to him and not really knowing otherwise. I mean, I don't really like knowing exactly every beat I want to hit, you know, again, cause it gets boring, right? Like you it does get you boring. Yeah. You can surprise yourself. And when you're sitting there, you have to like, it, it, it's like you plan out. And even when you think certain things are going to happen, I, I have this feeling that when you build things up too much in your mind and you can't surprise yourself, you yeah. just, you just get bored. So even if you're like, okay, I have this big centerpiece kind of scene, like everything hinges on this. Nine times out of ten, like that centerpiece never happens because you're just right, like, yeah. oh, I can't do yeah. it. I can't do it. Yeah, it's, no. it's too, it's too much. But I, uh, I want to talk to you, like, because it's interesting because I actually lost my grandma a little bit before you lost yours, so I'm just kind of interested in in that. So yeah, you, yeah. you two were close. Yeah, we were really close. I mean, she was, uh, you know, I, we I grew up with my mom. We lived right next door to my grandparents, and my mom worked like seventy hour a week. So I was always with my grandparents growing up. I was really, really, really close with them. And, um, I was lucky. I mean, you know, she, she was 91. My grandfather died a few years ago. He was 89. Um, wow. so I had a, I had a good, good, really good run with them and they didn't really have much trouble until the end, but yeah, they were my favorite thing to do as a kid was just hang out with them. And I, you know, some of the first writing I ever did was just kind of, I would tape record them and then transcribe it and, kind of call it a story oh that's beautiful that's why you're so good at dialogue dude you've always been doing that shit yeah i mean i think that's how i you know that's one of the ways i really learned about dialogue i think i just kind of would basically i was like you know like they were dictating stories i mean they weren't dictating stories to me but they were telling stories and i was tape recording and then and then i was transcribing them so i learned a lot about kind of rhythms of speech i think through that Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way because when I was growing up, it was also a case of, you know, dad uh, was in the military. And so right, right. they my parents had me very, very young. Uh, they actually met at a McDonald's. It's a long story. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but my dad ended up going off to VMI, which is Virginia Military Institute. Right? Okay. And then yeah, after yeah. that, he got into the military and immediately went to Bosnia. And then he was in it. So dad wasn't around very much. So right, most right. of my upbringing was sitting at the table with my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother, just everybody smoking cigarettes, just this thick cloud of, you know, cigarette smoke. In yeah, there. yeah. Uh, to this day, I, st- I just love the smell of cigarettes, right? Because it yeah. kind of brings me back to that. Who knew what I was doing to my like <laughs> lungs, you know what I mean? But grandma never yeah. gave a shit about that because she was just like, she was like three packs a day. That's what ended up yeah, getting yeah. her in the end, you know, was actually lung cancer, unfortunately. Oh, man. But, but so, uh, no, no, it's, you know, but that I think really like, cause I love dialogue too, but I think that just yeah. like sitting there and listening specifically to, to women talking, I think yeah. is, is, was really, really important because the, it was, it's gossip basically. And I think yeah. good dialogue has the flavor of good gossip, right? Like where yeah. you're, you're kind of like getting, getting like the juicy information on stuff. You know what I mean? Like people are, cause you, you don't want to have too much mundanity, right, in your dialogue. Like, it right. has to pop a little bit. So I think that that was, like, super, super important. So I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And you can, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that you can do with that, with that sort of dialogue is so good for kind of story within a story thing. You know, it's a, just a, a way of bringing tension to to a scene, to have somebody, you know, be able to, to 
grab your attention with a story they're telling within the story. It's so, so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like breaking the story down into constituent parts. And that's yeah. just kind of how I was realizing that um, reading this book yesterday uh, by a music journalist named Byron Crawford, who's, who's okay. mostly a hip hop. He's a hip hop journalist. He used to work for Complex and then he kind of said some offensive shit and got canned. But I, okay. I still read his stuff because he's funny. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I'm reading this book, this new book by him, and it's it's just essays about hip hop and recent, you know, kerfluffles in the community. And uh, I notice I'm like, the reason why this is so compelling is because he just moves from one piece of gossip to the next. Yeah, like, that's yeah. the only linking thread. Is this? <laughs> he just keeps gossiping, and I was yeah. like, oh, that's what makes this shit interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I have to check that out. So with your uh, with your grandmother, she lived in Gravesend. Yeah, I mean, we kind of my my block is um, kind of on the border of Gravesend and Bensonhurst. Um, so, I mean, a lot of like a lot of our a lot of what we did was technically in Bensonhurst, um, and and my family would probably often say you know we were, we were we're from Bensonhurst but I always I always stuck with Gravesend it sounded better cooler, yeah. yeah um and you know was, and when I was growing up I mean in in Brooklyn in uh, the 80s and 90s man everybody everybody knew Bensonhurst because Yusef Hawkins had been killed there and it had this you know real reputation as kind of a racist Italian neighborhood mm. And uh, so by the time I got to college, I think I'd started to try to kind of disown Bensonhurst right. and, and embrace Gravesend since we were kind of technically split between them. Um, but I mean, I really write about both of those neighborhoods and I kind of I kind of lose the boundary sometimes. But, I, you know, I pretty often just call it all Gravesend, but it's Gravesend and Bensonhurst. Did your grandmother live there her whole life? Yeah, she grew up. So she grew up actually. um on the block that the, that Amy lives in in the books, so she, she grew up across the street from the the church, St. Mary's. Um, that was her church. She was baptized there, and her funeral was there a few weeks ago. Um, she grew up right across the street from there. That's where I went to school at that little Catholic school, and then she married my grandfather, and they moved about five or six blocks from there. So that was her whole life was pretty much that six block radius between. Um, this house that she moved, they bought this house and where my mom still lives in 1954. And, uh, and you know, she had before that her 20 something years before that had been spent just, you know, right nearby. What did your grandparents do? Um, my grandfather was a, a mechanic. He worked, um, at a Ford shop in, uh, Sorry, I said Ford. He would have killed me. A Chevy, <laughs> Chevy shop in Coney Island. Yeah. I know. I was gonna, I was trying not to make that mistake, and then I made it. Uh, he worked at a Chevy, Chevy place in Coney Island. He was a mechanic. Um, he, before that, he'd like drove a truck, drove a coffee truck for a while, but mostly that was his thing. And he he retired pretty early. He retired in his from doing that in his fifties, and he became kind of like a handyman, just like handyman. Um, he would go around mostly fixing tvs and stuff like that but that was that was when i was growing up that's what i mostly remember but he was pretty good at fixing anything and my grandma um i mean she she was uh she 
was at home. She was, uh, um, you know, she raised two kids and, um, she, she'd had a couple of jobs before that, but you know, she was pretty much the rest of her life just, um, just at home. Did, do you, did she, did she have any particular stories about sort of growing up in that area that stick with you? Cause I mean, as you know, the New yeah. York of that era is extremely interesting. Oh man. I mean, they had a million, they yeah, had a million sure. stories that I think all that, all that stuff really kind of informs everything I write. I mean, that's why I think, you know, I, I don't think of really that I write, um, realism full on because i'm so informed by the mythology of the neighborhood that Mm -hmm. i think it becomes that kind of mythological brooklyn or at least the the boundaries between the real and the mythological get blurred uh so yeah i agree i mean her her um sister owned a bar um nearby that that a lot of that a lot of those stories really kind of bar stories really kind of worked their way into to my imagination as a kid and then you know i used to there's a famous um mafia figure named gas pipe casso who uh he he, he, there's there's a there's a book about him called gas pipe that actually was written by a neighbor of mine who was like a big wound up becoming a kind of big true crime writer his name's Mm -hmm. philip barlow um but so gas pipe casso lived in the apartment where my mom and i lived before us um and so we, you know, I'd hear stories like about him and about kind of mafia stuff, and um, you know, th- those were the kinds of stories I really that really enthralled me growing up. Kind of just neighborhood tales, uh, mostly, you know, mostly I was really interested in family stuff and mafia stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was it was it, was he uh, was he like a hitman or or what did he do? Yeah, he was he was he was big one of the big big. Uh, bad guys i can't remember the i'm gonna i'm gonna not give you the wrong information because i can't remember exactly the <laughs> the uh the family that he was involved with off the top of my head right now but um yeah he was a hitman he was kind of an enforcer figure and Wait, was that um, a God, was he a gaudy guy i don't think he was a gaudy guy i want to say genovese but i can't remember now off the top of my head. i have to go look at the book yeah, yeah. um but yeah, so he was, and this guy, this guy, Philip Carlo, who wrote a book about him also had a big impact. I mean, I never knew him really well, but he was our neighbors on our other side. Um, he was their kid and he was all much older than me. Um, probably 20 years older than me or 25 years older than me, but he was, uh, you know, he was kind of my first idea of, and really for a long time, the only idea I had of what a writer was, mm-hmm. um, is he was, he wrote a novel called stolen flower that actually got optioned and was supposed to be made into a movie by De Niro. And then, uh, he, he is most well known for his true crime books. His, I think his, his most well known one is, um, the night stalker. He wrote about Richard Ramirez mm-hmm. and like he went deep with these, you know, with these guys and you know, long interviews in prison and stuff. And he wrote that book on the, uh, well, one of the books on the, the ice man, mm-hmm. um, and this book on gas podcast. So yeah, if you see, if you, oh, if you ever see that book, it's, uh, some pictures in the middle of the apartment where I grew up because from the outside, because that's where we lived, and I used to, I just remember you know my grandfather and grandmother talking about him and and really being 
interested in <laughs> in hearing more and what what had happened and you know now you, so uh, you're, you're going up there in the in the 80s and 90s is that right yeah yeah so <laughs> I, I was born in 78 and uh i, I lived full-time there until 96 so. until 90. so let's say it's like 90 let's say 92 right yeah what is what is a, a typical day for william boyle <laughs> look like as a 14 year old <laughs> Um, oh man, you know, uh, so that would have been the year either I was finishing eighth grade and starting high school. So, um, you know, I, I mean, mostly my life was before high school was in the, in, I went to high school in Bay Ridge at a Catholic school in Bay Ridge. That's really the model for, um, the high school in Gravesend. Um, it's called Zavarian. And uh, I call it Our Lady of the Narrows when I write about it. Um, so, you know, that was that was basically like a 45 minute bus ride for me um, to get there. Um, so so once once I started going there, things changed for me a little bit. Like, uh, you know, I wasn't kind of locked into the neighborhood as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going I was going there, you know, five days a week on the bus. Um you know, so a lot of my a lot of my day was the bus. A lot of my day was just kind of getting to school and being at school and getting home. Um, before that, I mean, it was yeah, it was basically um, just kind of the same same six block radius that my grandmother had grown up in. I you know I went to the, this little Catholic school um, across the street from the house where she grew up, and you know I was, I was there for eight years, and um, you know really, I mean, I. I was pretty, you know, pretty much. I like being at home and watching movies and reading books. Um, yeah, but you're also a big music guy, so I was wondering <laughs> yeah. if you ever like. I guess maybe this would be a little bit later, but you know, I mean, New York. Did you did you see any any like life changing shows? Um, I started in in high school. I mean, I started you know before high school. I was really like. It was you know I loved Guns and Roses and I loved stuff like that. Uh, I mean, and and actually in retrospect. Um, there was a, I wish I'd known about it then. I was into a lot of that kind of, you know, especially when I was like sixth grade, seventh grade, I was into a lot of kind of metal. And there was a, there's a great, there was a great metal club in Bensonhurst called, um, Lamores, I think it was called. Um, and you know, like Guns N' Roses played there in 1986, 19. So I'm really, actually, this is something I'm really fascinated in right now like all these big heavy metal bands passing through bensonhurst brooklyn in the Mm -hmm. late 80s um but i never i never went to any of that you know i never knew about that and and then by high school i think you know i i think maybe seventh eighth grade things had started to change for me because i heard nirvana and uh and you know then in high school music really yeah music became more of a it had been somewhat of a presence in my life, but became more of a presence. And I started to get into stuff that, that really kind of impacted me in a bigger way, like velvet underground and sonic youth and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I didn't really start going to shows, I guess, until I was a senior, probably a junior or senior in high school. I really didn't start going. Into, there, I mean, there was nowhere to go see shows in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, I didn't start going into the city probably until my junior year a lot. And even then it was kind of just to see, for the most part, it was to see friends bands at like the Mercury Lounge or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't, you know, I really, I don't know if I have a, a great 
show story um, <laughs> from from those years. I don't I don't remember. I mean, I probably saw a couple of people, but nothing nothing that really was life changing. And when you moved out, where did you go? Did you go? You didn't go straight to Mississippi. No, no, no. I was so I went to um, a little town in the Hudson Valley. I went to college there called uh, New Paltz. It's a state school, uh, SUNY New Paltz. It's kind of across the river from probably a lot of other schools that you've heard of, that, that people have heard of. It's it's like right across the river from Vassar and Marist and uh, the Culinary Institute of America and Bard. Those are like the big schools across the river. And then we're the little state school on, on this side of the river. So it's, yeah, Hudson Valley, kind of a little like, hippie town um you know so in the 90s it's a lot of like jam bands and and head shops and stuff like that hell yeah dude <laughs> um so yeah that was that was that was weird but you know it was 90 only like 90 minutes away from the city so i was still kind of still home a lot mm. uh, and i lived up there for the better part of probably well five years and then i, I met met my wife katie um we moved to texas together actually we moved to austin for a year um lived in austin for a year came back lived in new paltz for another three or four years Mm -hmm. her family was from her family's from the bronx originally but then they when she was a baby they moved to uh, this town called monroe which is not a half hour from new paltz um and then you know we're in new paltz for another three years and then we moved to the bronx for a couple of years um, and then we moved to Mississippi. Now we've been here for ten years, and uh, you seem pretty happy to be there. Oxford's a great little town, though. It is a good town. Yeah, man. You know, we—I don't know—we we, we like it a lot. It's uh, it's got a great bookstore and a great record store, and just made a lot of good friends here. And it's it's proven to be a hard place to leave. I just you know we keep thinking we're leaving, and then we keep staying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of leaving and going places, you uh, after Gravesend was published in uh, France by Rivage uh, yeah. as its one thousandth release, which is pretty, yeah. which is pretty dope. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. When you do you go? How often do you go back and forth to France? Um, so when the, when it came out, they brought me over in twenty sixteen. They brought me over twice, and then. Um, you know, now I'm now I'm with Galmeister. So I, I was there once last year, and when when they put it, they put out a book of mine called Everything Is Broken that has not been released in the states, mm-hmm. um, and now they're putting out The Lonely Witness this year. So I'm going back in October. So, uh, so the, basically, Everything Is Broken and A Friend Is a Gift You Give Yourself are not the same book. No, yeah, they're different books. Okay. Everything Is Broken is actually the book I kind of. It was it was a shorter it's a shorter novel it's like 150 pages, um, and it's kind of also like a little bit of a branch off the Gravesend tree. Um, takes place in the neighborhood, but none of the same characters. Um, but but it's kind of in the world of the story. But it's not a crime novel. It's kind of a uh, I don't know. I I call it a noir melodrama. Um, it's kind of like a fam- little family sad family story. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds like a Boyle book, bro. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same stuff, but it's just you know, there's no there, there's no crime really in there um, yeah. to kind of give it that extra push towards being identified as a crime novel, I guess. And how's that one doing over there? Good. I think it's done pretty good. Yeah, it's got you know, it's it's uh, it, 
you know, I don't, I can't really read a lot of the stuff that comes out, but it, it was, uh, it seemed to be received pretty well. That's cool. Yeah. No, the French translation process is very interesting. I, uh, yeah, I, uh, it is. for me, it was like, there was one where it was, uh, they had to have a footnote in low in the French version right. of Lowdown, where it was like, "This is who Tupac Shakur is." I was like, "Really? Yeah. They don't know who Tupac is? That's crazy." I so. The footnote thing is weird. I I, I noticed that in my uh, in the German edition of Graves and that just came out. It's just weird to me, like what's footnoted and what's not. Like they don't know who Rudy Giuliani is, but they do know who, like you know, Ice Cube is, or so. I mean, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever mentioned didn't get a footnote. Right. Um, so yeah, that that, that is a, a a weird, interesting process. How's was, that been? How's that been for you? How's the low down death ride easy oh, stuff been with Ravage? I mean, they're great, man. They were awesome. Yeah. I I don't think the book did very well over there. Um, I saw a few reviews of it, and some people were like this is great, but mostly it was like I, we have no idea what this guy was trying to do. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll take my lumps. I'll try again. You know, <laughs> but yeah, no, it just it didn't really catch. Um, I think I heard. That, I mean, I heard nothing but great things about it from people over there. But oh, really? That's cool. Man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the people who I talked to when I went over there all seem to really dig it. I think what I'm talking about is just more like with the general reader yeah, yeah. populace. Um, right, right. And uh, but no, yeah. There was another footnote that I I personally love a lot where it was like uh, uh, I had made a joke about God damn it, what was it? I don't know. It was some corny joke where I was talking about like dicks and balls and I was like <laughs> changing people's names to have and like since it was plays on words they had to like yeah, put yeah. a footnote on it and be like these are dick and shit jokes that's the, <laughs> that's literally the fucking the note is like hey in case this doesn't you know you kind of have to be able to speak English to get this but he's basically talking about penises I thought that was it was like humor really scatology scatological humor. <laughs> I was like fantastic but yeah, yeah no, I don't. The, the process kind of mystifies me because the books are the books are also like a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? no, I know, Which, dude. Yeah, they said something. So there's said, a lot of added stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that, and I think it's. Uh, I've read somewhere that English is one of the most uh, one of the most economical languages. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So French in general. I mean, that's why when you have like a, a like Sartre or Camus or whatever come over right. here, the, the books are also tiny. Because they're actually writing, you know, 60, 70,000 word books. But when you translate it into English, it goes down to like 30 or 40 because the, yeah. <laughs> the French are just so verbose, man. They just they just talk. There's lots of words. But uh, but no, yeah, it was great. I, I, I dug going over there. And uh, it's really kind of cool to see folks like you and Todd Robinson and yeah, Benj- yeah. Benjamin Whitmer now has the same. Yeah. He's in the same situation you are. Yeah, he's where, got a book that just came out yeah, there, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's not here in the U.S. So it's kind of like, man, the French are on their shit when it comes to crime fiction. So They are, man. You know, it's something I've always, always kind of known, just, you know, which is what made it so extra kind of amazing to me when it happened is like i grew up loving all these writers and hearing stories about how you know the they were forgotten about here and in france they were loved and revered and so you know it's kind of it's kind of amazing but it's it's always been a, a thing that they're good at <laughs> you yeah, know, Chester Himes tapped into. yeah himes and, and even i mean even like faulkner and poe but I, I mean i think more i'm thinking more of like goodis and and uh you know, writers like that. I mean, nobody, nobody even, you know, for the most part, like maybe in our circle, like people know David Goodis, but your average 
American does not know who David Goodis is. And in France, like I'd say your average French person has probably heard the name knows like in my experience, um, like they know David Goodis. They, they love, you know, they love that stuff. What do you think that's about, man? Do you have any theories? I don't know. I mean, I think they do have a, I think they, I don't think they put some of the restraints. They like dark stuff. They like melancholy stuff. Um, and you know, I think a lot of that, like Jim Thompson, David Goodis, Williford School, especially, is is really just right up their alley, and really not up the alley of like general American audiences who 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 like solutions, um, or who like you know more formulaic stuff. Mm-hmm. And those books are not about. I mean, those books are not about that at all. They're kind of you know, they they're. They're violent and they're, they often like, you know, take place in a, a world that doesn't have meaning or might not have meaning. And uh, I mean, I think the French are just tapped into enjoying that <laughs> more yeah. than than most most folks. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it is true that Americans really do want some kind of solution with their fiction. They do. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, it's not not a problem. It's just that it's just a very specific type of book that you have to write. I mean, it, maybe that's yeah, why yeah. the, you know the crime thriller is so like the serial killer thriller, right? I right, mean, right. in most serial killer books, um, i trying to think, I guess not in like, I think the night gardener is the only one I can think of right now where, uh, you know, the serial killer is like not, not caught. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. That's part of the formula, by the way, right. that have you read the night gardener? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Dude, that book one. rules so much. I'm, I'm going to, so I'm going to go back to it soon. Cause I, I recommend yeah, I actually want to reread that too. Yeah, it's so sad, man. I mean, that's a that's a fucking French tragedy noir, yeah, yeah. if ever there was one. And it's just, no, it's so great. It's so great. So, yeah, so you were on, uh, you've been all over the New York Times. That's cool. How does it feel to be in your, uh, in your hometown paper, bro? Man, it's it, uh, pretty surreal. Um, I mean, the Pelicanos thing was really, you know, he's been... Just one of those writers for me, um, which I think is probably obvious if you read anything I've ever ever yeah, written. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even more than that, like, you know, he was one of those writers, not only that I learned from like what he wrote and how he wrote, but I used to just, you know, when I got into him, I'd read interviews with him and I got basically discovered everybody that I love because of him. Like, you know, he, I remember him recommending Megan Abbott in an interview and Vicki Hendricks and Willie Vlaughton. Um, and you know, these are, these are writers who become, became pretty quickly my favorite writers and, you know, discovered that stuff through, uh, interviews with him for the most part. And, uh, so it was, you know, it was really cool to even see him mention my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he. I, I noticed that he unfortunately caught a little flack for that. I don't know if you saw that shit on the. Internet. I did. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of. It's. It's just. I don't. I don't know. Like exactly how I feel about that. When I see. So basically, for anybody who doesn't know, on Twitter, uh, Pelicanos caught a little flack for his "by the book" column for uh, failing to mention any women writers who had influenced him. And at yeah. the end of the day, man, I don't really know how I how I feel about that particular criticism. Like, I think it's fucking really important to read widely and to read women but yeah yeah i just don't know if like i think it's maybe a little bit wrong-headed to like maybe police people's particular tastes right you know what i mean yeah i, I agree i mean i think I, I i didn't there was nothing about that that felt like it was a performance on his. it wasn't like he was purposefully 
um, excluding one from his list. I think he was just being honest, um, you know, about what he'd read and what had influenced him. And I mean, the thing that struck me weird about it actually was I've discovered so many fucking great female crime writers through him, through mm-hmm. interviews with him, like, you know, Megan Abbott, Vicki Hendricks, uh, I can't, uh, Laura Reese, like a bunch of other writers. So it was, you know, it was strange to me that he, that he, uh, didn't, um, you know, that he was catching flack cause he, he's been great about that his whole career really. So, I mean, I think it was just a moment of him just actually listing what he read. And I mean, I don't think he was, I don't know. Yeah. And it's like, if it you didn't catch, feel... if you catch somebody at the, at the, at the time, I mean, if I'm being honest, let's say I was doing a by the book yeah. column, right. And right. somebody asked me what my influences were. Um, like and I, it sucks to say this, but most of my influences came to me when I was like a teenager and a, a young yeah, yeah. young adult, right? And so, if I'm being honest, back then I just read mostly dudes, you know, because yeah. I was like a yeah. I was like a sixty, so you know Chuck Palahniuk and James Elroy and David right. Foster Wallace, right, and all these you know white men. Um, but then and then if I was also doing that column and somebody said, okay, what do you have on your uh, shelf right now or what do you have on your to read pile well i guess right. actually i'd be in the clear because i have otessa moshfeg and uh <laughs> Alyssa nutting on there and then another book but you know if you catch me on the wrong day yeah it might be three yeah, dudes, yeah. you know so it just it felt to me sometimes this happens on the internet where um it seems like people latch on to the this very interesting and not necessarily wrong-headed narrative about yeah, about inequality but but just it just feels like sometimes i just want to be like this isn't it guys this is the this is this is not the person to to go after you know we have yeah we have fucking donald trump dude it's like it's right not, right like I don't, yeah i mean i think that that was what struck me i mean i'm sure there are people who um you could really go after for that uh i mean pelicanos has never struck me he's he seems like somebody i read sarah grand for the first time because i mean just like he seems like somebody who's really keyed into what he likes and what's good and it just kind of was uh he just listed some stuff and he wasn't really you know thinking or at that moment that was the stuff that he was talking about and thinking about Mm -hmm. it didn't feel it didn't feel mean or or i mean it didn't i don't think it's proof that he doesn't read women because I know it's not, I know, I know that's not true. I know he reads a lot of women, you know, I know he's talked a lot about those writers and championed a lot of those writers, you know, uh, speaking, um, of, so, uh, speaking of Sarah Grand, didn't you get an advanced in, infinite laptop? Dude, is it I good did. or what? It's it's great. God yeah, damn. Really I want to read that so bad. The Claire DeWitt yeah. books are fun, yeah, like, the, just hands down, I think might be like the best crime novels of the past yeah. few years, you know, um, yeah, that's my, that's my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah. She's. I got to meet her in France. No way. Um, we were we were at the the first. I guess it was the first time I went over. We were at that um, festival together, and she's awesome. Yeah, that's she's great. Cool. That's one of the cool uh, yeah, perks, the new, right? Have you met any other? Uh, yeah, yeah. Heroes. Uh man, yeah. With that one in particular, I got you know she was there and Richard Price was there. Nice. Um, which was awesome, and you know, and then I, James Grady was there, and he was great. Um, you know, I'm trying to, the next festival I went over to was not, that was like the first one was a noir festival and the second one was more of just a kind of literature festival. I got to meet Colin McCann at that one. Mm. Um, so there was, yeah, there's, there's been some, there's been some great opportunities to meet heroes. 
Nice. Well, this uh, this is going to be coming out, I think, uh, right when Gravesend re-drops. So for okay. anybody who's read Gravesend, I apologize, but I feel like we have to do our due diligence and talk a little yeah, bit man. about about Gravesend itself. So quick pitch, what what's Gravesend all about? Um, <laughs> hold on one second. Sorry. No worries. Um, so yeah, Gravesend is a story of, it's kind of, kind of a few characters coming together, um, uh, in, in time of crisis and desperation. Um, so, uh, Conway D'Innocenzio is the, the, the first character we meet. He's the brother of, um, a kid who in the nineties, Duncan D'Innocenzio was, was the victim of a hate crime, um, at the hands of this guy, Ray Boy Calabrese. And he was, he was killed, um, you know, not murdered, but, but the actions that Ray Boy committed kind of led to the death of Duncan. And the, the book starts with Conway, um, wanting to get revenge and and ray boy is out of jail and he's living in this his family's country house upstate and so conway goes after him and then um alessandra is the other main character and she's also in the second book the lonely witness um she's she's a failed actress who's returned to the neighborhood after the death of her mother and to kind of help out her father and she she um knew these guys from from school um and then there's eugene who's the uh, who's Ray Boy's nephew, who's kind of high school age and 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 uh, really romanticizes who his uncle was and wants to be like the bad version of his uncle. But Ray Boy's out of prison and he's he's kind of uh, changed. And that's the that's basically the setup. And all these kind of lives come come crashing together. And you know, and they're all they're all from the neighborhood Gravesend. But a lot of the action of the book is kind of set around different places um but you know the the they, they kind of carry the neighborhood with them and the neighborhood informs who they are and what happens so do you uh now the book is very much informed by what the characters do so at times it can be sort of like the one thing that i really dug about gravesend is that it seems to be um the narrative doesn't really have a moral, right? The uh, the yeah. characters themselves kind of inflict their own morals upon themselves. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering, like, when you're writing this story about this reformed criminal, well, allegedly reformed, right, who gets out of jail and is just trying, yeah, yeah. is carrying this guilt around, I feel like you're really, in that sense, you're kind of saying things about what punishment actually is because Ray Boy lives inside his own guilt still, right? Yeah. And um, I don't know how much you really want to get into what happens later on in the book. (laughs) Uh, But Um, um, basically, I guess what I'm saying is, do you have a personal opinion about people's ability to change and like what forgiveness looks like and if that's even attainable? Like, do you have a personal opinion um, on it? I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I think. I guess I guess I just think nothing and this is kind of one of the the main things about the book I think you know nothing's nothing's easy um uh, so I, I don't I don't I don't think I do I mean I think uh, you know I I think one of the things that I I don't want to say too much about the book either but you know one of the things 
about the book that surprised me as I was writing it was the trajectory of Conway from a character you feel some sympathy for to a character that you you don't feel any sympathy for. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, I mean, I think I'm kind of tangling with those things all the time, Um, morality and forgiveness and and what what even that means. But I don't think I'm trying to say anything Mm -hmm. specifically about it. I think I'm just kind of you know, trying to, trying to see what it all means, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And that's something I think the, the no easy answers thing, especially towards the end, it gets really kind of twisted up and entangled. And, and but yeah, I mean, those are really interesting yeah. themes to kind of wrestle with. So do you think that there's any, <laughs> think there's any, are you, are you a Catholic or did you grow up Catholic? Uh, no, yeah, I was, I'm, Catholic haunted, I guess I call uh-huh. myself. Uh, right. Yeah, no, no, I grew, I grew up Catholic. Yeah, I went to twelve years of Catholic school and was pretty deep into it. And then, you know, college got away from it. Um, and then, kind of had a probably a couple of year period in my twenties where I got back into it a little bit, and then I faded away from it again. And you know, I mean, obviously, there's um, there's lots of uh, terrible shit associated with the organization of the Catholic Church. But I do, I do, you know, I think there's a lot of Catholic art that really moves me and that kind of serves as instructional to me and is, is sort of my version of church, even though I'm kind of a, I don't know, I call myself, a, I guess, a Catholic atheist or a Catholic agnostic. Um, but I'm so informed by by it, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, especially like, you know, writers like Flannery O'Connor and, uh, Graham Greene and then like films, filmmakers like, um, Brisson and, uh, and, um, Dreyer and, you know, folks like that. So a lot of that stuff has really had a big, big impact on, on me. Yeah. I think that the most interesting thing about Catholicism, um, you know, and of course, ignoring the gigantic uh child molesting elephant in the room yeah right uh is is the fact that if you if you are looking at it as a practice not the priests but the people who specifically practice catholicism and the church and like you said and the art and the relics and the fact that uh catholicism basically started way back in the day as like a weird death cult i don't know if you knew this but you know way back in the day uh Obviously, Christians were thought of as being these really strange people who who had yeah, yeah. just this kind of obsession with death, and they drink the blood and eat the flesh of their creator right, right. and stuff. It's fucking metal, dude. Catholicism <laughs> is kind of cool, dude. It is. It's noir, man. Too. It's you know, it's it's uh, all about shame and guilt and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> regrets yeah. and and you know and it's it's uh, when you get deep into like the mystics and stuff, it's really. I mean, it's, it's, that's why I say I'm Catholic haunted. I mean, I think everything I think about and do in some way is informed by my exposure to that stuff. But, you know, I also can't, I can't get behind the institution really. Yeah. And I was reading about saints and there's, there's a ton of interesting saints out there too, man. There was one who, uh, God, I'm gonna, it's, I think it was St. Teresa. I'm not sure, but there's a patron saint of like television um and, oh yeah yeah and the story is you know when she was on her uh i think she was on her deathbed she saw projected on her wall uh images of christ's crucifixion right and right so, and this was back in like the 17th century was it 
Mary of Avila. I'm not sure. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to Google real fast. I'll cut this out. <laughs> yeah, I can't. No, what I can't remember. I'm, I'm trying to think of it too. St. Clair. Is it St. You're right. Yeah. St. Clair of Assisi. That's who it was. Right. Um, I mean, I just Googled it too. So. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that off the top of my head. But yes, yeah, so you have them and, and you read all these accounts of, uh, of like St. Teresa, I think was the one who had like this almost UFO experience. Right. And they, yeah, they yeah. write these kind of mystical. St. Teresa of Avila, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Uh, and it's just, it's really, really fast. It's so much cooler than what I came up in, which was Baptist church, which right, is right. just literally like, don't fuck, listen to God, listen to your parents. You know, you yeah. walk into this extremely plain room and they're like, work hard. There's just a cross on the wall. And then they play some super whack, uh, Christian yeah, rock yeah. at the beginning, you know? <laughs> and then a little bit later in my, in my upbringing, my mother started going to like a speaking in tongues, snake handling type church. Right, right. That's when it got cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> religion can religion can be fucking metal, dude. It's just it can be, yeah. It's just you know, it just depends on, uh, I guess, what you really think. I don't know. Yeah, man. Have you ever see? I mean, I think of uh, I, I love Abel Ferrar, and I think a lot of his movies are really just so kind of informed by um, you know, Bad Lieutenant, especially. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. about. I mean, that's kind of a weird, like weirdly, one of the most Catholic movies I've ever seen. And it starts off uh, with the, the nun being assaulted. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, I mean, rough, I, man. It is rough, but I mean, I mean, even even down to just the the imagery of the church um, sure. is is just so, you know. I mean, once that kind of embeds itself, and you know, and that really the lonely witness kind of is is a lot a lot um, about that because Amy's Amy's kind of gotten back into the church through the good stuff through reading Dorothy day and reading about the saints and remembering all this stuff that mm-hmm. they kind of drew her in as a kid right. and that fascinated her. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I think a lot of my, my experience kind of and thoughts on it went into, went into her, um, you know, her character. Well, sir, is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we go? Man, no, thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, having me and thank you for all you did to bring graves in into the world man you know it's it's been uh it's been great and i owe owe that to you i gotta say man it is one of the most when you are toiling in the indie mines right and you you put effort into stuff and nine times out of ten it doesn't go anywhere and you can and by you i mean me can sink into a a depression you know because you think like what am i even fucking doing here like i'm letting everybody down you want to talk about some some Catholic guilt? I got that minus yeah. the Catholic dude. It's like I got I have that indie publisher guilt, uh, which you just shoulder and walk around. So, anytime man, I see like Gabino or Jed or you like out there doing really really well, uh, it makes me really really happy that you know that I could just kind of be there. I feel like, uh, oh man, you know if it's like if it's if it's one thing that indies can do, it's just that they can just kind of sit because I didn't do much you know I just put it out there and was like look at this you know and it's like by doing that it's it's like a little kid who is with his dad and his dad is like uh, chopping wood or something and the kid has a little <laughs> toy axe and he's like I'm helping you know but yeah. it, but it still feels good it mitigates oh, it mitigates all the stuff and uh so just keep killing it man because it makes my heart happy and I'm just really oh, thank really, you, really pleased by the whole thing I can't wait for your your new books coming out soon, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, I don't know. I'm it's excited, all, man. It's all done. I just have to press the button. 
I'm just uh, nice. just taking that plunge, bro. But yeah, all right. So nice. uh, let's 